All right, guys, um, we are jumping right in to Genesis. And guys, we have two chapters left. Isn't that cool? I hope you've been encouraged, but I hope that's a clap of I've learned a lot, not like hurry up and get done. Um, I hope you've been encouraged. If you need Bibles, uh, Carrie's passing those out as well. You can raise your hand. Uh, we'll be jumping in and text, so you, uh, it'll be on the board, but... Uh, but we also, you know, just to make sure I'm not adding little words in there, you might want to have your Bibles. And um, our heart is uh, train our body and what does it mean to walk with the Lord. What we do is we go through books of the Bible here. We are in Genesis. Um, let me, before we begin, let me give you a couple of rundowns of the next few weeks then, though, guys, because we'll be done with Genesis and we'll be teaching more books of the Bible. But we're going to stop for a little bit and just to let you know... Um, we have Easter Sunday, praise the Lord, next week, and then we'll finish up uh, Genesis the week after that. And then right after that, um, we have a little gift, a little pause gift that we won't tell you what we're going to do. But then uh, we're going to jump right into a series I'm really excited about called Christ, Culture, and Community. Okay? Uh, to give us a little break, and hopefully that'll be really cool. Uh, then we'll hit, um, we'll probably be in the middle of the summer, well, beginning of the summer, and then we'll uh, hit another series called Christology, Christ on the Cross, okay, uh, which uh, hopefully will continue to encourage us and what does it mean when we talk about worshiping our Jesus. And then um, toward the uh, middle to the end of the summer, we're going to hit an apologetic series, okay, apologetics uh, basically, uh, the, the, I think that the thing will be uh, becoming conversant about our historical Jesus. All right. So and then we will hit in the fall Colossians. All right. So uh, so we'll hopefully you'll we'll have a packed. Right. You, if you come here for a while, you better know the gospel because we're going to be jumping into uh, different aspects and nuances. I just want to give you guys that, that, that thought process real quick. A couple other things is. Uh, I want your mat groups. If you're if you're not in a mat group, if you're not being disciple, we really encourage you to be disciple first of all, and to be in a mat group, uh, which is which is part and parcel of what it means to be discipled in this local body. But we want you guys to be thinking through vision, okay? In your mat groups, you need to be um, sitting down. The expectation as you're thinking about the vision of your mat group, and you're saying, what does it look like for us as a specific mat group to be engaged in our community, okay? And so we want you to be thinking through that and making sure that you're serving together and that we are trusting the Lord uh, for cool things in our community, that we're neighboring well and that we're loving our city well. Because I'm, I'm really asking the Lord, like in our MAG group, we're trusting the Lord that um, in our MAG group, we'll see 10 people um, come to Christ in our community in the next year, that we will be sharing our faith, making the gospel known, and that we would trust the Lord for that. So that's just an example of some things you need to be asking the Lord if this is what you trust the Lord for. How, what are you going to do to see that happen? So those are the things you need to be thinking through. Um, and just to remind you guys that next week we have a break for Mac groups. Okay, so you get a break because of the Easter week is so intensive. We have Monday, Thursday and things of that sort. So you take a break, relax, enjoy the Lord and be rejuvenated to be about the gospel together in community. Cool, guys. All right. Wouldn't it be cool as we as we were inviters if we just if the Lord allowed us to invite about 200 people to hear the gospel uh, Easter Sunday? Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, let me just let you guys know. So uh, when you're inviting people, I'm really excited. So next Sunday, what we're going to be talking about the whole theme is the resurrection matters. Okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about. And so you can tell people uh, the resurrection matters. Don't come judge it. Come hear the story and then make your judgment based on the reality of God's truth. 
All right, family. All right, let's jump right into some text. Y'all ready to rock? We are in Genesis chapter 49. Um, if you go online, you can get the sermons uh, just to encourage you. Uh, we're going to be able to go through the whole deal of like what's been going on uh, the last 48 chapters. But it's been crazy. Uh, just in a nutshell, uh, you have our good God. Um, he creates us. We have the audacity to sin. This is in the beginning stages of the scriptures. God is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that um, we as man, our hearts are sinful and our intentions do evil all the time. Uh, we have something drastically wrong with all of us. And that is we are inherently evil because of the fall. And then what God does, he doesn't leave us there, but he's gracious to respond and say, I'm going to, I could have destroyed you, but I'm not. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, through, through humans, I'm going to recreate this thing. I'm going to redeem you eventually. Uh, but I want you to get something throughout all these thousands of years. And that is you're really, really, really messed up and you need a savior. And so that's what he's doing. And so what we've been looking at in Genesis, we've been looking at family line, which how God is going to bring redemption. But before he does that, he wants to show us even in the family line that he's going to bring redemption from. They are deeply in need of Jesus because they're just as evil and messed up as the rest of us. Okay, so that's what's been going on through all of Genesis in a nutshell. Someone asks you, what's the Bible about? We all always tell you it's about bad people and a good God. Right. So we're all bad and God's the only good thing. Right. So that's. And that makes a lot of us who are arrogant and prideful like myself mad, but it's true. And so that's what God is proving. We go through this family line. We get through four generations. We get through, we see Abraham. We see how crazy he is and how God is gracious. We get to um, Isaac. We see how crazy he is and God is gracious. We get to Jacob. We see how crazy he is and God is gracious. And seeing all the crazy stories, check out Genesis. Absolutely amazing to watch uh, the depravity of man and the faithfulness and goodness of God. And the heart behind that is that we would run uh, to our Savior because you realize that, man, I do need a Savior. That's what God wants us to see. And that this Savior that we run to is faithful and he is good and he is kind and that he will do what he said he's going to do. And that is allow you to experience true life in him. So now we're in Jacob and then we hit uh, Jacob's kids and now we're in the fourth generation. We see Joseph, uh, one of Jacob's kids, actually from his, the wife he favors the most. Uh, who has a very crazy life, but God has been really gracious to him to say in your crazy life and you being in prison, having some girl try to accuse you of rape, uh, being a slave, your brothers try to kill you. Um, and all in essence, all this is happening because I want to really save Israel because Israel is where the promise is going to come from. And so Joseph ends up moving from being a prisoner and a slave to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. He saves not only Egypt, but he saves the whole known world at that time because there's a huge famine. Well, first there's a feast for seven years. Then there's a famine for seven years that makes the feast look like nothing. He's wise. He's the only one in Egypt with the Holy Spirit. They commit and serve him in, in the sense of letting him go and, and disperse all the grain and all the food and all that stuff. He does a great job. In the meantime, he reunites with his family that he's been estranged from his dad for about 20 something years, 22 years or so. They reunite. Um, he reunites with the same brothers that tried to kill him. He does not hate on them. He he. He forgives these guys. These guys are amazed. He blesses his whole family, moves his whole family to Egypt with him. And they're hanging out in Goshen, gets a good, um, a good plot of land. And uh, last week we looked at Jacob being an old, uh, brutal man. And what he does before he dies, he begins to pass the baton. 
And so we see last week he passed the baton to um, his grandsons and he talks about how he's going to bless those guys. And we get to see something. We see an inverted order, right? Again, in history, in antiquity, it was always the oldest son got blessed and the youngest son, you know, you got some leftovers. But we see many times in Scripture, God, he inverts that. And the reason why we propose that he inverts that for as far as Bible study methods is um, theologically God is trying to say something to you and me, and that is that God is a God of grace, and he does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And so that means that none of us, none of our stories are written based on our pedigree, on how smart we are, on what we have, on who we know. That's not your story, right? If your daddy and mom was a drug dealer, so what? That doesn't have to be your story. That was my story. God says, I take weak things, right? And then I do strong things through them. So you're not looking at the weak thing, but you're looking at King Jesus. So that's the beauty. So what God does, is he says, you think this guy should be blessed. Actually, I'm going to bless this guy because you, so I can, so I can mix you up. So what we learn there through Jacob and Esau even <clears throat> is that, and even Manasseh and Ephraim last week, is that God does what he wants to do and he can always invert things. So that's one of the main reasons why he mixes up the birth order. But he blesses those guys, and then we see him pass the baton, and now we're here in chapter 49, and we're going to get a continual um, description from the Lord um, through Jacob on what he does with Jacob's sons. So now we move from his grandsons to his sons, so we're going to jump right in, okay, guys? Just to give you clarity, if you've got questions, you can ask those questions uh, there's not a faux pas here in our body. We just want people to learn more about Jesus so it can lead toward worship. So we really encourage questions. So don't feel like I don't get that. I'll just sit here and be quiet. Now, we do ask that the questions would edify the whole body. If there's something specific or you want to beat me up, just talk to me afterwards. Don't bring that up now and start showing out. So you just want to have some clarity there. Okay, chapter uh, 49, we're going to jump right in. You ready, guys? Verse 1. Um, so that's where we are. So we leave off where uh, Jacob has blessed these guys. Uh, Joseph gets mad at Jacob. He's like, no, you didn't bless the older one. You're supposed to bless the older one. Jacob says, listen, my son, I'm doing this thing. I know what I'm doing. I'm an old cat. I'm blessing the younger one because God wants me to bless the younger one just to show you that it's not about birthright. It's about new birth, right? It's about what God is doing in the spirit. Okay, so here we are. It says in verse one, then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around uh, so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. So keep in your mind as you're reading the scriptures that we've been going through Genesis for a while. Remember, uh, Jacob has gotten a lot of airtime, right? Him and his family have gotten a lot of airtime. When you think of the book of Genesis, when you think of one of his sons, Joseph gets 12 chapters right out of 50. Okay, and so Jacob's been in the game for a while in Genesis. You want to ask yourself, why is that the case? Because I propose that chapter 49 is going to get to the point of why that's the case. Why does he get so much airtime? And in doing so, we've seen Jacob's crazy life. And so now he's at the end of his life. He's super old. He's just blessed his grandsons. He's sitting on his deathbed. And he says, hey, call my boys in. So he calls in all the homies. And this first verse to me is kind of hilarious because it says, Gather around you so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Can you imagine that? So you go in and your daddy's like, I want to tell you what's going to happen to y'all. When you, when you be kind of nervous, you know, maybe I'm the only sinner here, but I'd be thinking like, oh man, what's going to happen to me? Like you'd be trying to recount all those things you did, you know, you, that's me. I'm kind of like, what did I do? Am I fair and good here? You know, some of you are nicer to me, so maybe you're thinking, oh sweet, tell me what I'm going to get, you know, but that wouldn't be me. So, um. 
So he starts with that, right? So he, he um, verse 2 says, Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. So again, he's, he's about to die, and he's sort of blessing these guys, and he's sort of telling them, this is, this is what the Lord does. And it's very interesting here because uh, at this point, Jacob's kind of being prophetic. And that's why he even says, whatever reason, the Lord has allowed him to say, here's what's going to happen to you. And he becomes prophetic. And he starts off uh, with verse, in verse 3 here. He says, Reuben, which is one of his sons. Who's Reuben? All right, he's uh, yeah, and the guy who did the whole mandrake thing, right? Remember? You are my firstborn. Uh, he's the oldest, okay? He's supposed to get hooked up. My might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up unto your father's bed, unto my couch, and defiled it. Wow. So can you imagine? So come in here, son. So you're all sitting around. Well, you, remember you slept with my, my wife? Well, we're not going to bless you. So, uh, so basically, he tells him, because of what you've done in the past, um, <clears throat> you're not going to get a blessing. Uh, continues on. You know, move over. Okay, I'm done with you. Uh, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Um, we're in verse 5 now. Uh, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and have hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Uh, cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Man, can you? This is just getting crazy. So the first two guys pop up, uh, and he just goes off and talks about all the bad things that are going to happen to him. And it was interesting. A couple of things. Uh, even this guy, he's like, you're, you're even cruel to animals, which is interesting. In verse six. Uh, he says, you, you crew the animals, uh, you killed a bunch of people. If you remember the story, uh, these are the guys that when it, their sister got raped, they went and they had all these guys circumcised and then they murdered basically the whole, the whole town of men uh, because of what they did to their daughter, um, to, to their sister. So you have uh, the first two guys pop up, come up. He says, hey, guys, you're not going to get many blessings. Actually, the first three guys. And to me, what was encouraging as far as implication is concerned, um, when you think of the text, I love that he's being honest. I love the fact um, that in the text we get to see something here. And I think we got to, there, there's something we can learn as far as implication. We talk interpretation, but implication here for us in our body, as we serve our neighbors, as we neighbor here in this community, as we're a prophet, as it were, hope you guys understand that, that God has given us, when I say prophet, truth telling, not foretelling. As we are telling the truth in our community and caring for people, there is a big difference. And I think we can struggle with this sometimes. There's a di- big difference between giving hope. Hope is when you talk about what people could be, like where things could be. Uh, but you're kind of versus excuses. Like you, you're kind of lying and it's kind of excuses usually when you take what people could be and you act like that's what they are now. That makes sense? Because in our community, we got to be careful to discern the two. And sometimes we can do that. We can we see where we want people to be and then we give them false hope by excusing their behavior. And we start almost talking about them as if. This is who they are now. I love the fact that Jacob's just call. He calls it is what it is. He says, here's what you've done, and here's what that's going to get you um, because of what you've done. This is this is your reality. And he doesn't he doesn't hide the bad news. He gives them he gives them bad news here, but he's going to give good news too. But I just love the balance there. I think there's something we can learn as we are trying to be redemptive in our community, as we're trying to tell the truth uh, to our community. 
So he says, hey, I'm going to, you guys, you guys, um, for whatever reason, uh, this can seem kind of unredemptive, right? It could seem like he, he's, he's telling them this. He's never forgot it. He's kind of mad. And like there was nothing that they could have done to get out of this. It could seem like that, right? They made, they did these sins a long time ago, and it is what it is. I'm proposing by the way the discussion is, again, this is an argument of silence, but it seems that the author wants you to get a picture of, uh, I think the best case scenario is that these guys probably never really repented. That they probably walked around and probably never really dealt with this stuff because of how the harshness of how he's talking about them. He's talking to them as if this is a current reality of like, this is the current reality of your heart. This is what you did and you still haven't changed. It seems like that's kind of the tenor. So I don't think this is our, these broken hearted people who repented and walking with the Lord seeking Jesus. And then, you know, Jacob saying, I know you, you off the chain now. You went to seminary. You love Christ. You don't repent it. But remember what you did, you know, in 08, we still, you, you know, you won't, you, you're not going to get blessed because of that. Don't propose. Yeah, I'll propose you doing that. You know what? I actually think that that was God. Actually, that's a good question. So... <clears throat> Uh, what Jeremy's saying is that uh, the Levi, they become actually the, the Levitical priesthood and they actually get scattered around the land uh, because the people, act, the people of God actually takes care of the Levites as they are around the land, making sure that those people are walking with the Lord. I, I, only reason I, only reason I struggle with that, because that was a, that was a, a good interpretation from many theologians, actually, in some of the commentaries I read, is that part of the, the curse, as it were. I propose, I don't, I don't know if I totally buy it because it seems that in Scripture that's actually a blessing uh, for, the Levit- for the Levites to have that role as being sort of the, the, uh, the pointers to the gospel in the sense of making sure that the people of God were walking with Christ. So, but, but I would propose that that's, not, um, that's more normal. People think that's one of the, the curses is that they actually didn't get land and have material possessions, but they had to actually rely on on their whole history, on others providing for them. So maybe because I'm a pastor, I'm hoping that's not the case, because then that means I'm still cursed. I'm just kidding. But um, that was a joke. But um, so that's that's good insight, though. Right. Exactly. And that's why I think, I don't think I'd actually buy that. I think, uh, yeah, I think because they're, they're eventually priests, I think God was showing, like, I'm going to still be gracious to you even in the midst of your sin. So uh, that's, what, that's what I'm thinking is happening there in the text. One question. Uh, we're in verse 8. <clears throat> Judah, so he goes on to Judah. So we got a couple guys who he's really dogged out. And then you go to Judah and says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Uh, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Uh, your father's sons will bow down to you. Uh, so he says, look, you got, you're going to be a powerful man. You're, you know, you're going to be able to uh, protect. Uh, you, your enemies are not going to thwart you. You're going to thwart them. You are Alliance Cub, O Judah, verse 9. Uh, you return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Uh, you're going to be a powerful, basically in the sense of powerful nation, as he's saying to this guy. And and now, again, God's gracious, right? I mean, it seems like this Judah had done just as much crazy stuff as all these other guys. In fact, he was probably the ringleader in trying to get his brother killed. I mean, yet he gets blessed in this way. So, again, just not, again, just 
uh, God's grace and understanding that the Lord, the way the Lord does things is not the way we do things. But also, I think it proposed, um, there's a sense of, again, was there a heart issue there? Was Judah's heart, uh, which we've seen in the previous chapters, the way he's discussed and talked uh, with Jacob and the way he talked with um, Joseph when he didn't know it was Joseph, it seemed that his heart had been changing, that, man, he had a repentant heart. And I wonder if God is... Um, is modeling that, is showing that some through even the blessing. Verse 10, I want you guys, if you are here, this is a very famous verse. You want to circle this verse. You want to underline this verse. Uh, we're going to talk about this verse in a moment. Very redemptive verse. Uh, this is what you call a, a typological verse. The scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is a, a this is a major uh, verse where basically God is going to fulfill this through Judah, but then he also fulfilled this in um, later on uh, through Christ, which we'll look at in a moment. Until he comes, uh, let me just read it again. The scepter will not depart from Judah, uh, people who have scepters rule, nor ruler's staff from between his feet, uh, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Uh, this person, whoever this person is, which we, we, know, we know as Jesus, um, the nations will obey him. He will tether his donkey to a vine, uh, his coat to a choicest branches. This is a sense as a picture of he's saying that this king, this person who has the scepter, he's going to have rule and he's going to be an abundant rule. So this this whole issue of of tying um, a coat to a vine or a branch, the whole point of that is, you know, a, a coat or a horse is going to eat whatever it's tied to. So there's so much stuff that this, this person doesn't care where they tie the horse because there's so much beauty. There's so much lush uh, you know, vines and, and, and fruit that he can eat that fruit and we can tie him somewhere else. So it's just a picture of abundance that he's given up. He says, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Uh, again, a picture of abundance that, you know, maybe it's either an issue of like when you're stomping, uh, you know, grapes, that the wine splashes up on your up on your garment or even that, you know, he he has so much wine that he can bathe that they can they can they can wash their clothes in wine. It's since that this king, this scepter is going to have this kind of abundance. His eyes will be uh, darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Again, a picture of abundance that this king will have uh, will just will just have plenty of bounty or booty. Um, Verse 13, so that's, so basically we're going to get to that and we're going to talk about those, uh, those pictures in a moment. We're in verse 13 now, Zebulun. Uh, he says, you buddy, you will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His borders will extend the Sidon. Uh, kind of weird, you know, he dogs a couple, he tells a couple, you're going to be cursed. He says, man, Judah, you're going to get all this stuff. And he says, and Zebulun, you're going to be like a, a fish guy, you know, you're going to be on a ship, you know, kind of deal. And. You're going to be the sea people. So I guess he's like, well, at least I'm not current. At least I'm, okay, I'm a sea guy. Okay, so that's what he gets. Um, <clears throat> Issachar is a raw bone donkey lying down between two saddlebacks, right? He's, he's big and he's, he's going to be like this, this bucking donkey. But when he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. He's big, but he's lazy, right? The whole point of that is, is you do, you're going to, you're kind of like, you got all this might and you could, you got the capacity to be this way, but actually you're lazy. You're going to be a sleeper. And so, uh, and, and now you're lazy. So we're going to have to, the way you work is people got to force you to work. So it's a sense of like, you know, submitting you to forced labor. Um, so not, not to encourage an Issachar. 
uh, just basically is going to be a, a, a big lazy dude. Uh, verse 16, uh, Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So he's just going down the line. Uh, Dan will be a serpent by a roadside and a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumbles backwards. He says, Dan, you're going to be a man of justice. Isn't that right, D? Holler's your boy. So, um, so Dan is, uh, is a guy, he's, 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 for, he's for the people. He's a, he's a guy of justice, and he, and he fights and bites and says, look, we need to do the right thing. So that's, <clears throat> so that's his deal. Uh, verse 18, I look, for, uh, I look for your deliverance, O Lord. I'm sorry, I messed that whole thing. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, uh, but he will attack them by their heels. Verse 19, Gad, you're going to get jumped, dude. You know, that's what he says to Gad. Um, uh, but he says, guess what? They're going to beat you down, but then uh, you're going to be able to get them back kind of deal. So just hang in there, buddy. Uh, verse 20, Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. So uh, he gets excited because he's going to be really wealthy. So he tells he's just going down the line and he's blessing these guys and basically telling them and there's a point to this, guys. Um, Natalie is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. He's going to be, uh, his, his kids are going to be cute, right? So he gets, <laughs> I'm just, this is what the text, I'm just saying, this is, this is a picture of like, you're going to have cute offspring. So I don't know if you're going to be paid or not, but your, your, your kids are going to be cute. So it is what it is. And then uh, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring uh, whose branches climb over a wall. Okay, you see that picture, right? You, that God is going to bless them in such a way that, that, that you can't even really contain it. They're climbing over the wall. So it's this beautiful, lush picture that he's giving, um, that he's giving Joseph. And, and he says, but here's the reality. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. Uh, so, but at the same time, you're going to be blessed in that way, but you're going to have a lot of haters. Right. You're going to be getting blessed and people are not going to like you. And I just don't know for me, I just thought, man, I pray uh, that we wouldn't be a jealous church. You know, I was thinking like, Lord, as I was just praying through the text and I was like, I pray that we would be OK with seeing people who have success and who don't. Because basically, I'm even here. The reason why he gets haters is because he's successful, because God is going to um, bless him. I pray that we are people um, that we're not jealous and haters. It says, but, you know, hang in there, buddy. Verse 24, but his bow remains steady. His, his strong arms stay limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Not because of yourself, but because of God is going to protect you. God is going to be your rock. Look at it says in verse 25, because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below. Blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, uh, than the bounty of age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince among his brothers. So he gets blessed, and God says, I'm going to bless you, and it's going to be because of my grace. Uh, I'm going to protect you, even though all these things are going to, people are going to be throwing stones at you. I'm going to bless you. Don't worry about it, Joseph. And then he ends with Benjamin. Now, it's very interesting. He ends with Benjamin, who is the youngest, right? Uh, who's the guy who should get the less stuff. But it says here, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours a prey. In the evening, he devours a plunder. This guy is just a straight G. He's like a man's man, right? Uh, <clears throat> guy's hunting. He just does all this. You know, he's, we got some of you guys in here who are like this. I'm not this guy, like, you know, hunting. No, you just, this is like you know, Jared, you know, and, 
you know what I'm saying? Like, he, you know, you go to his house, he's, you know, he's getting syrup from his tree in the front yard, and, you know, I don't get it. Is Jerry here? Yeah, so, oh, hey, buddy. And, um, he's this guy's a G, man. He just, you know, um, devours his praise, some of you guys shooting things, Scott Selly, you know, and, um, yeah, that's not me, but I'm more hoping, I don't know where I'm at, but, um, verse 28, guys. So, of all these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each of them each the blessing appropriate to him. And it, do you ever contemplate that? Think about that. So he just says, Hey, I went through the line here, I wasn't respective persons, kinda dry, but let's keep it real. I'm gonna walk through here, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna bless people who should be blessed, and I'm gonna curse people who should be cursed. Appropriate to what they've done, appropriate to who they are. What would be, if that was you, where would you be in that journey? As you look at your, your fruit of pleasing the Lord, um, he's gracious. I just was thinking about that. Man, what would, what, would the, what would the Lord be saying? So that had to be a crazy scenario. Can you imagine leaving that room as 12 brothers and knowing that you've heard all the different blessings, and it sounded like they were all in the room when he did this. And I don't think it was the one. It sounded like they were there. He called them in the room. Uh, and now you know, like, oh, man, you're going to get jumped, dog. Sorry, my kid's going to be cute. Like, I wonder how, you know, I was wondering how that combo went. You know, what would that combo look like? You're the guy that's rich. You know, I'm going to be rich. You know, and you just, like, I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, so maybe if you're Benjamin, you just think, well, I'll beat you up and take your money. I don't know. But, so... Uh, verse 29, uh, then he gave them these instructions after he had blessed these guys. He says, I'm about to gather to uh, my people, um, be gathered to my people. Basically, I'm about to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, the cave in the field of Mechpelah. So we, we're getting down to business here, guys. So here's where the text is going to take us, guys. This is where it gets really cool. Uh, near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place for Ephraim the Hittite along with the field. Um, so now notice that. So, so he, has a, he has a couple of places where he can get buried. So this is very interesting. He can be buried in Egypt, right? Because he doesn't, he's, he's believing by faith that the promise is going to happen, that God is going to bring people back to the promised land. We know that it won't happen for another 400 years, okay? So he can be buried there. Here, here's my family. Here's my crew. Here's my kids. Bury me right here. Or he could be buried because they're going to travel back. And what land are they going to pass? They're going to pass the land in which where they buried Rachel, Right? Who is his, his awesome wife that he loves to death? Okay? Or he can, be made, he can be buried in the land that God promised him, almost in a sense being buried where God wanted him to be buried. And it's just something that's very interesting that he chose to be buried. Like, you know what? I know I can be buried with my wife that's sentimental, that's deep. Here's my family. This is what I see right in front of me. But I want to be buried with the promise the promise of God. I want to keep the focus on God. Which I thought, huh, it's very interesting. You know, like family wasn't the main priority for him. His wife was the main priority for him. But actually God was the main priority uh, for this brother, even when thinking about where to bury him. The scriptures read, um, when Jacob had finished giving, verse 33, giving, giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up in the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So um, he died. Okay, guys, Jacob dies, and Scripture says in verse 1 of chapter 50, Joseph threw himself up 
upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. So Jacob gets on him, cries. Very crazy time. Here it is, man. We have a major patriarch who's passing the baton, guys. We're getting to see this picture. Uh, and the scripture says, Then Joseph directed the physicians in the service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking the full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Just picture this. Just, just unpack this. Stay with me. A lot of texts. I know looking through that, you're going, what's in it for me just to watch a bunch of guys get blessed? I want you to love the scriptures. I want you to think about what God is doing in the text. here, And I want you to see this. OK, guys. So picture this. Here's a guy who dies in a foreign land. His son's a slave. What does that make him slave more at the least? OK, his son dies. But they respect Joseph so much and they respect Jacob so much that he gets basically this huge memorial funeral. In fact, it says, it say Egypt mourned for 70 days. They're mourning for a guy who worships a different God, who is a total foreigner, a guy that, remember, a couple of chapters ago, they wouldn't even eat with. Remember that? There's something to be said about what, whatever happened during that, those years where they were adding value and being of good use and and knowing that, okay, we have different guys. I love Jesus. You guys don't know who you love. You love some pagan God that doesn't exist. But guess what? The common good is that we, is that I love you, right? And we, and we love where we are. And it's something that I was just thinking in our community. I just pray that the Lord would allow our body. I just thought, man, he gets a funeral. It's almost like, you know, if like Billy Graham died. I remember when Bill Bright died. It was a huge, huge deal, right? Because whether you were a believer or unbeliever, um, people respected like Bill Bright. I mean, I think when Billy Graham dies, it's going to be the same way. I mean, unbelievers, believers, I, I really, when that happens, I mean, it's, I think the whole, I think the country is going to stop. You know, well, why? I propose because here's a guy who, who loves, who loved the Lord, but loved people. And at the end of the day, even unbelievers are like, you know, you can talk to an unbeliever and be like, what do you think, you know, what do you think about Jesus? And they cuss you out. What do you think about Billy Graham? He's a good guy, you know? Which is interesting. And I think there's something about, about what the Lord uh, is going to give us, is hopefully allowing us as a community to be about, and that is to be about how do we love our community well enough where, where we're not always against people, right? Where, where people know us not for what we are against, but what we are for, right? We're for the Lord. We're for the good of the community. We love the people in this community. And I just pray that we'll have a balance where we can have a above reproach, right? I don't care if people get mad at us because we love Jesus. We're not gonna we're not gonna compromise our faith. But sometimes I think we can we can merk that based on our baggage and stuff. Does that make sense? So I just think it's very interesting that this guy who is a, basically an unbeliever to these guys, to the Egyptians, uh, gets blessed like this by Egyptians. Uh, verse four. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, I have found favor in your eyes. Speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me uh, in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. You're a bad man. You can dig your own tomb knowing you're going to die. He said, hey, so he, he probably dug the tomb then dipped. Um, and, now, and he says, now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. So he says, hey, can you give me some time off? I need to go bury my father, which again, I, I, I propose shows you Joseph's integrity, doesn't bury him in a foreign land, uh, just doesn't care what the Pharaoh thinks. The Pharaoh actually gives him grace, though. Pharaoh said, go up in verse 6 and bury your father as, made, um, as he made you swear to do. 
Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. And this, you see this, guys? Picture this. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. So you had Egyptians, all these people accompanied this guy um, during his death. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. And when they reached the threshing floor at Atat, uh, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and, they, uh, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atat, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why uh, that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. Unbelievable. Picture that, guys. Verse 12, so Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Mechpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had had bought as a burial place um, from Ephraim, the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt because he's still a slave, guys. Remember that. So he had to come back, okay, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Okay, so here's the question. A couple questions that remain, guys, is this. First, okay, so he buries his father. Father's dead. Mama's dead. Brothers have played him out. Uh, the first question you got to ask yourself, which we're going to see next week, is so. So what happens with the brothers? Okay. Um, you know, does it become some like weird uh, Godfather episode, like part two, you know, where the mommy and daddy dies and now you go kill Alfredo? You know, is that what's going to happen here? Is that is that what they're thinking? Like what what's going to happen? So you're going to see the brothers are really nervous. So that's the one question that's going to be answered next week is what's going to happen between the brother, the familial relationship. But also the question you got to ask that's most important. And this is why we had to walk through that text here is why is all that there? Why does God put all that in chapter 49 in the beginning of chapter 50? And then why does Joseph, why does Joseph and Jacob get so much airtime through the scriptures? Why does Jacob get, I mean, I mean, what, what, 35% of Genesis? If not more, I propose almost 50. Why does Jacob get so much time? Why does Joseph get 12 chapters in Genesis? What is the Lord trying to show us through this family? What is he trying to show you on me? Just a bunch of uh, blessings and lineage? And what is he trying to show you on me? Well, let me take you back to a very important passage here. So we see Jacob goes uh, to Judah, which is uh, right now when you're in Jacob, you're in the third generation. Judah, uh, we go on, you get to 1 Samuel. You see Judah uh, moves to David. Uh, David is a king, a very powerful king of Israel. And what we begin to see is all this points to King Jesus. Okay? So now you go, oh, I get that. Well, I want us to do, we really get that. I want you to see, I want you to understand something. There is a huge point what he's trying to do for even the people, even in the wilderness, who don't even know where the promise is pointing to, but he's trying to help us see something here. He's trying to show you and me that the God of the Bible is different than the God that you and me, that you and me create in our lives. And that unbelievers create, that this world has created, that we, that we can propose is the God. He's trying to say, no, this is the God of the Bible. Let me give you a, a picture here. So, very famous verse. Here's what happens here. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. Okay, so right here, 
I'm telling you right now that who's introduced as king is Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the scriptures here. Uh, Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. So we have here, again, you have this, you have this, this prophecy, and then you have in Numbers, which is a retelling of what was going on in the history of Israel of old. And it's saying, hey, that same scepter that we're talking about in Genesis, this is the scepter I'm talking about here. That basically there will be this king, that this ruler will come, and he will rule over all nations. He will not just be, for, for, for argument purposes, not just be the ruler over Israel, but he'll be the ruler over all. And he will come from this Jacob. Uh, you can also write down Psalm verse 45, uh, uh, verses 3 through 7, chapter 45, and check that uh, passage out. It's an awesome passage. Look at Zechariah. Look what it says in Zechariah. In Zechariah, you're talking about this is what they call a minor prophet, okay? At this point, you've just had Genesis. You've had Numbers, which is now you're doing the time of, the, of Moses and hanging out. And so... Um, and then you have all the way to Zechariah, which is what you call the minor prophets. Uh, this is this is probably privy during during a time where these guys are in exile. So so at this time they've already have kings. Uh, Israel is well established. Israel has sinned. They have been exiled. All kind of crazy things have happened. And look what they're still talking about. Even in Zechariah, it says. I will strengthen the house of Judah. Still talking about what's happened in Genesis. I will strengthen the house of Judah, tell, helping us understand that these prophecies are still happening. And save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. Let me tell you something. The promise that I gave you in Genesis 49, I'm going to keep it. I will keep it. I'm going to mention it again just to let you know I have not forgotten it. And guess what I'm going to do with these guys? Even though they have sinned against me, because again, a, a theme of scripture is you have the, a, a holy God saying, I love you, I'm going to give you a covenant. Then you have us as evil men sinning against God. And then you have God saying, because of your sin, I'm going to put you in exile. Exile means I'm going to take you away from me and not allow you to experience my blessing. That's what he did to the Israelites. But then, because I'm so good, the major thing in scripture is that I'm going to actually restore you. I'm not going to allow you to continue in exile. Some of us right now are in exile. If you don't know Jesus Christ as king, in essence, you are in exile. And God says, you don't have to be there because I promise to restore you. So here's what he's saying to these guys. This is Israel as a nation, guys, okay? He's saying, hey, I remember what I said. They will be as though I had rejected them. Um, for I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. I'm sorry, they will be as though I had not ever rejected them. For I'm the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. The Ephraimites uh, will become like mighty men, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. The promise I've given you, the things I've talked about, I'm going to do that one day. One day I'm going to take this tribe, these, these, this people group, and I'm going to allow this people group to see that I am king. And guess what? I'm not just king over that people group. I'm king over the whole world. I'm going to fulfill this promise. He's continually reminding us. He says, verse 9, Though I scattered them among the people, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will, will survive, and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be room enough for them. You're going, well, what are all these places? These are places where he's, he's saying, listen, I've scattered these guys. 
I am one day going to unite my people and my people are going to worship. They're going to worship me, the true living God. And the whole world will one day have to submit to me. This is what he's telling. This is prophecy. This is what he's telling these guys. Remember this. I'm going to be faithful. You remember I'm going to be faithful. Look what he says in the scriptures. Verse 11. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. He's not just talking about waters. He's saying, you know what? You might think you're going to be um, insignificant. You might think you're going to be destroyed. Don't worry about it. I'm going to get you through all that stuff where one day you are going to be with me and you're going to be validated as my sons and daughters and I'll be validated as your king. A serious pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepters will pass away. He's talking right now about that specific land, those specific people, right? He's saying, hey, one day, all these people that you think are ruling or who are big time, it won't matter. They won't be big time. They won't have the scepter. I will have the scepter. And those who are under my rule will experience beauty. We go on. So he said, from beginning of time, from Genesis... We get to Numbers. We look even in Zechariah. We've seen the history of Israel. And we've seen this, this, this people group go from meager nothing to millions of people, having a king, being very powerful, sinning against God, God exiling them, saying, you want to worship your own gods. You want to worship fake things, which is a lot of us. Well, you go ahead and do that. I'll be over here. God says, but I'm not going to exile you forever because I got to keep my promise because I am faithful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to restore you one day. So he's still saying, I'm going to restore you. I will restore you. Look what the scriptures say. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So now we're in the New Testament. So now we're in this day and age and he says, guess what? That promise I gave you way back then, when I gave you that promise through this other ethnic group, these other, this, this people, this Israel people, I'm going to fulfill that promise with those people, but that promise will actually reach all the nations. Same thing he says in Micah 5 verses 2 through 4. You can look at that on your own time. But even when we go further, now we get from Matthew's time, Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus gets, uh, lives a, a crazy, lives a life of of, of being poor and poverty, and he say, he doesn't sin at all. The scripture says, he who had no sin became sin on our behalf. He The people despise him. Uh, we, we murder him. He rises from the dead to validate himself as king. And look what it says here. Still, in Hebrews 1 through 8, after the resurrection, but, but, a, but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Still bring in the sense of scepter, showing us that what he said in Genesis 49 is still what he is going to do and is still what he is doing. We continue on. Let me just show you something. In Revelation 19, love this passage here. So what is, what is God trying to say here? God is trying to say that the promise he's given you and me he has he had that promise way back in the beginning, and he's bringing it all the way through the whole fabric of Scripture to show you and me that the promise God has given us, he has completed, he will complete it, he has fulfilled it. So look what he says in, in Revelation 19, verses 5 through 10. Then a voice came from the throne saying, I love this passage, praise our God, one of my favorite books, 
all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder and shouting. Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Look, he says, for linen bright and clean was given her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. A couple things here. First and foremost, love the fact that you, you're talking about right now a conquering king. See, see, Jesus was meager. Jesus was poor. Jesus, um, I mean, you looked at him and the scriptures say that he just he kind of didn't look like kind of intimidating. And you can you can begin to think that that's our Jesus, that he's going to come kind of meek and kind of bony and kind of like frail, you know, and like with a big ponytail or something. But that's not what you're seeing in the scriptures here. In fact, this is your God, is that God will eventually he's going to come back and he will be ruling with a scepter. And what the Lord wants you and me to understand is that he's going to be ruling over everyone, the postmodern, the modern, the new age. Everyone will be getting ruled over and that what he is doing, I love this whole sense of that the people of God standing for the righteous acts of the saints, uh, which you see in verse 8, is that what he's doing is that he's comforting his people. And that the promise that he's giving you and me, the promise that the Lord will be ruling, and he's saying right now that I'm going to be gathering my people with me, and then they're going to rule with me, is what he's trying to show us in Revelation 19. Let me continue on. Then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant. This is an angel talking. You need to worship God because what God has said he's going to do, I'm nothing. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Continue on. Continues on. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. I love this picture is that this king, this king that was promised way back in Genesis, when we didn't know who he was, we didn't know what he would be doing, while he would be coming. We see right now, here is a king that we see in Genesis 49, verse 10. This is him. He's not just some punk. He's a guy who is ruling and reigning. He has blazing fire coming out of his eyes. He's judging the world. God says, what I said I was going to do, I'm going to do it. This is real. I'm not playing around. And it says that basically he has crowns. He is a G- with justice. He will judge. He makes war. People say, well, I thought God was a out of peace. I thought God was kind. I thought he was nice. I'm just telling you, you know, what, what, what about peace? I'm looking at this. I'm going, God, God is a peaceful God. But guess what? Peace comes after you kill all your enemies. And so I'm proposing that the scriptures are showing that, guess what? One day God will destroy all of his enemies. And guess what? Peace will come. Because God will bring order back. The scriptures continue on. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Uh, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which to strike down the nations. This is the judgment. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Uh, his treads, the, he treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love the sense. Um, 
this whole, I love this sense. So you have this battle war. You have the sense of a battle here, guys, okay? There's a battle that's ensuing. That's, that's what's going on here. And that God will judge the nation. That God will judge people. And I love the fact that they're in white. It's this picture I want to steal from, uh, I was listening one time, but Mark Driscoll, the sense of like, like, okay, like, he has all white on, but he's about to fight an army. I mean, you know, I, have, you, have you ever fought anybody before? I mean, like, if you are about to fight somebody, and they step out of their car in all white, they must not think they're going to get dirty. They must think that this is going to happen real quick. And, you know, it's almost like the picture that Jesus gives, like, you know what, hey, Holy Spirit, I'll be right back. Leave the car running. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just this picture of, like, God is just so majestic. I mean, the picture that he wants us to see is, like, he's so majestic. He's going to come out. He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge Satan. He's going to judge sin. He's going to judge death. And then we're going to experience glory with God forever. It's kind of a picture. King of kings, Lord of lords. Revelation 21.5 says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why are we going through all these texts? Because I think it would be unfaithful if I didn't help you see that what God wants us to get in right now on this side of the New Testament, where we get to be after the resurrection of Jesus, we get to have spirits and historical reality of what Christ has done on the cross and being risen from the dead. He's saying, I want you to understand something. In Genesis 49, verse 10, what God is saying, the reason why I gave Jacob all that time, the reason why I gave Joseph all that time is because I want you and me to understand that I am pointing to Jesus, that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is coming to rule. Jesus is coming to reign. That we have a sin issue. And that only by saying, Christ, you're my king. I submit to you. Will God actually allow us to be part of this team when he returns? The scriptures continue on in verse 21. It says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring the splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. See, now that's what I want us to get. I'm blown away in our community. People, we got to have the audacity to actually think that God is going to like, that he's going to let evil people hang out in heaven. No, because then it'll become earth. Okay? That's not going to happen. And so that's the thing is that you, you're, you fooled yourself if you think, I'm going to hate God. I really don't give a rip about God. But you know what? I really want to go to heaven. I really want to experience all of God's presence. So how do I milk this thing? How do I freak this thing where I can still get everything from God and just prostitute him, but yet I don't have to really love God? You don't get it. And you don't understand the gospel because people only go to heaven if you love God. And if you fool yourself, and if you're going around and teaching a false gospel and thinking, I'll come in here and I'll be spiritually apathetic, and yeah, and I'll play the games, but you know what, I, you know, I'm doing the right thing, you don't get it. You are still dead as a doorknob, and you don't love God, and you are not a Christian. Christians have their hope in the Savior. Their confidence in the Savior. And so that's what he says, on no day will its gates ever be shut. See, guess what? Because he, he, he's going to destroy all. He doesn't have to protect because everybody there loves King Jesus. Everybody there realizes that they're messed up and that they need a savior. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it. Do you hear that, family? Nor will anyone else who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jacob's whole point and his family's whole point is to point you and me to the reality of the gospel. 
to reality that Jesus is our king and that the king is coming. That guess what? The promise that was given in Genesis 49 verse 10 has been fulfilled. That's the point. That the promise has been fulfilled and that you and I can finally now live life under that fulfillment. And my prayer, our prayer that we won't play around, um, is that the thoughts to ponder is that is our, when we think about our lives, are we pointing, them to, are we pointing to Christ? Like, are, just as Jacob's life pointed to the Lord, uh, are we pointing people to Christ in our lives? Um, are we pointing to Christ in our families? Are we pointing to Christ in our body? Are we pointing to Christ in our community? Like, like how are we retelling that redemptive story? How are we telling that redemptive story? Ask yourself that question. Think about it. Um, we just had a, I've had a really crazy hard week with people not wanting to deal with sin, uh, people not wanting to uh, repent of stuff. Um, and guys, I just long for our body to be a body where we realize that, man, it's not about the good that we do, but it's about the trust in the Savior. And, and to understand, like, man, we are so undone. And to not go through life playing a game, but realizing that, man, the Savior, okay, Jesus, this is not just religion, but Christ came, lived a life, died, and then rose from the dead to be king of all and to be king of my life. And only if I would receive him. I pray that we're pointing our lives, our families, our body, this individual body, our community in Christ. Um, some practical ways you can do that right now. I just want to encourage you. If you have been coming here and you're not being discipled and you're not uh, being cared for, I want to encourage you to, man, there's some people here. I just think it's a, such an honor to have people in this body pouring into you, caring for you, walking with you. I want to encourage you to consider that. I want to encourage you to be in community, to begin reading your scriptures, to be connecting with one another, um, and just make Christ known in this community. Uh, that's what's going on in, in Genesis 49 and 50. It's Christ is trying to say something. He's trying to give us a wake-up call. Especially if, you, if you're here right now and you know you don't really get the gospel. You know you don't know if you love the Lord or not. You know you've made mistakes. Some of us, we've done some crazy things. And you're thinking, oh man, I, my life's a wreck. You know, I got this issue. I want to propose to you right now. Um, that's the beauty of what God is trying to show us. Is that there's nothing outside of his scope. He's the king of everything. And that today, your life can change. That today, you can choose Christ. That today, you can say, I'm going to love my wife. Or, hey, I've been fornicating. I'm actually going to marry this girl. Hey, uh, I'm going to take care of my kids. Hey, I'm going to quit. I mean, you, you fill in the blanks of whatever our issues are, but that we can choose Christ. And we don't have to choose folly anymore. I'm, not, I'm going to stop being spiritually apathetic. I'm going to stop with my sexual sin. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the Lord to give me the grace to begin to choose Christ. Let me pray for us. Do we have a song, guys? I'm going to do tithe and offering.